All right, I'm going to go ahead and read you a psalm before we get into today's sermon. And um, <laughs> this will be Psalm number 60. To the chief musicians, musician set to Lily of the Testimony, a michtam of David, for teaching when he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah. And Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. O oh God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. Oh, restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Selah. That your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Sukkot. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with your armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God, we will do valiantly. For it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Okay, today we're going to look once again at this beautiful story, this unfolding story of Joseph and his uh, family. And this is Genesis 44, verses 18 through 34. And this is entitled, Judah's Impassioned Plea. Starting in verse 18, it says, Then Judah came near to him, this is speaking about Joseph, and said, O my Lord, Please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a brother, father or a brother? And, have, and we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man and a young child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead and he alone is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for he, if he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down you with you, you will see my face no more. So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Once again, I want to explain this in case anybody's watching this on YouTube and a uh, few of you uh, have missed some of these sermons. This is all one long story. 
and every part of it is being tied together for an ultimate reconciliation between uh, Joseph and his family, picturing the reconciliation of the Jewish people to Jesus Christ. All right, it's very clear in here what's going on. Last week was a very important sermon. Next week's uh, will be wonderfully beautiful. And then there's another one where the message gets back to Jacob. Those three sermons are really, really impressive in how they're detailing what is coming in human history in the future. Today's sermon is called Judah's Impassioned Plea because it's a very passionate plea of Judah for his younger brother, Benjamin. Now, before I uh, actually get into what I want to say about that, I want to thank somebody that uh, watches these uh, YouTubes every single uh, YouTube videos every week, and um, I think she's a few behind because she hasn't had internet for a while. But uh, her name is Heather, and uh, she's actually come down from her hometown and visited us at our place. And uh, she's a very nice lady, and she often sends me these uh, these letters in the mail. And they have Jesus written all over them. I don't even know how the postman can find the address because it's got little flowers and scripture all over it. And it says, Dear Mr. Postman, and it says something wonderful to him. And this is a lady that is just full of love. And she loves the Lord Jesus. She's got some children and she's raised them in the way of the Lord. One of them actually played guitar for us at the beach when we needed somebody. Um, uh, But Heather is always thinking of other people. And she's not rich by the world's standards, and uh, that's why it almost bothers me how she sends me letters, because I know it costs her money. But one thing she did for me this week uh, was so nice that I wanted to acknowledge her in front of the whole world. Anybody that sees this video will know that she sent me this bandana. And if you can't see it closely, it's got crosses all over it. And she said, I've been looking for one of these for a long, long time just to send to you. What a what a heart. And she said, I bought one for myself as well. And so I want to thank Heather and how much that absolutely means to me. People send me things once in a while in the mail or they'll make a donation to the ministry. And that means a great, great deal to me. But the widow's might, you know, the, the, the one that can afford the least and does so much. And it just touches me. I'm about to cry, so I'm going to stop. But Heather, thank you. And then there's one other person I have to mention because it happened this week as well. Is there's a person named Kim. I've known her for many years, long before Facebook. Um, I actually, when I traveled around the United States in 2010, I visited her with my wife. We went to her house in uh, Missouri, and uh, not misery. There's no misery there. It's Missouri, okay? Wonderful state, wonderful people. And um, she, this past week, watched the sermon, and I noted before I did the sermon last week that it was going to be long. And I told everybody in advance, this is going to be longer than most sermons. And she went crazy. She said, woohoo! You know, she was like, I, I'm so excited. And she said, I know most people want to get out of church, but I was so excited to hear a longer sermon. And so because of her, I have now gone from my regular 19-page sermons, I'm going to be doing 30-page sermons every week. So I'm kidding, of course. But that really made my day. That really made my day that somebody is so passionate about God's word that when she had an extra long sermon, she was thankful for it. So once again, two women that have just touched my life this week in a way that is beyond my ability to truly acknowledge it. So thank both of you. Um, Going back to what we talked about in the uh, particular passage or the, the sermon passage that I read, it's good to note that when a man and a woman come together as a husband and a wife, one traditional part of that vow that they take, and this is traditional vows, not everybody says this anymore, but it's that they will be with each other from that day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish until death do them part, okay? 
And this goes back to the premise that they are now one flesh, which is what the Bible teaches, and that nothing should separate that bond. On the other hand, there is no vow to be taken for becoming a son or a brother. These things come by nature and are often beyond our control. But the bond of family members should be as strong as the bond of the parents. Marriage is chosen by man in the presence of God, but family is given by God for one another. And yet throughout the Bible, we see warfare, not protection between family members. Cain slew Abel. Esau threatened to kill his brother Jacob. Absalom did kill one of his brothers, and then he overthrew his father, King David. And these are just a few of the many examples that are found in Scripture where love and harmony should prevail, jealousy, hatred, and bitterness arise. Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, and because of this, his brothers hated him, and they sold him off as a slave. But every time somebody follows through with such an action, the Bible shows a response from God. He's not unaware of what occurs among the sons of men, and he never lets such an offender off without justice being served. Each receives the consequences of his own actions. And that doesn't mean it happens in their life. It will happen after this life, if not in this life, but they will suffer those consequences. Judah participated in the selling of Joseph. And he, along with the brothers, are now reaping the consequences of what they did. But he, as the spokesman for them, now has a chance to make things right, even if it costs him his own freedom. Collectively, the Jewish people, whether they know it or not, have and they continue to reap the consequences of what happened to Jesus 2,000 years ago. Individually, they can, as the book of Hebrews says, go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. But as a nation, as a nation, they will eventually have to make a stand for Christ, even if it seems it's going to cost them everything. We don't have all the finer details, but we do have the overall picture. They will, in fact, do the right thing in the end. Our text verse today comes from Romans chapter 30. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, meaning the Jewish people, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy on them all. This is the richness of God's work in human history. He called Israel as a people for himself. Eventually, through disobedience, they were set aside so that the mercy of Christ might come to the Gentile peoples. Someday, we're going to be taken out of here at the rapture, and God's mercy will again be extended to Israel. That time is certainly drawing near, as we can tell from the events which are going on in the world around us, all centering on Israel. We are a people that are in anticipation of great things because we are a people who stand on and trust in the promises and the prophecies of God's superior word. We have more pictures of what lies ahead in our sermon today. And so may God speak to us through his word today and may his glorious name ever be praised. Three thoughts for you as I normally do. The first is without Benjamin, you shall not see my face. This is verses 18 through 23. The words which are now going to be spoken by Judah are actually beyond proper description. Any comment on their substance will lack in conveying the emotion, in grasping the humility, or in comprehending the magnitude of what he's now going to speak. 
And the reason for this is that they now picture a moment in history which has been anticipated truly since the fall of man, but more especially since the naming of Israel there on the bank of the Jabbok River as he traveled back from Canaan uh, to Canaan from Padanaram. There he wrestled with a man in the dark of night. It is Israel who struggles with God, either for God or against God. But yes, Israel struggles with God. Later, there was the selection of Judah as the kingly line. It is Judah who speaks for all of Israel. And it is Israel's king, Jesus, who descends from Judah, who has authority over them as they strive with God. Scholars have struggled to properly put into word their feelings about the next 17 verses. But here are some of their comments. It is one of the masterpieces of Hebrew composition, according to Kalish. It is one of the grandest and fairest to be found in the Old Testament, says Lang. Lawson says it is a more moving oration than ever orator pronounced. Inglis remarks that it is one of the finest specimens of natural eloquence in the world. Jameson Fawcett Brown says that consisting at first of short, broken sentences, as if under the overwhelming force of the speaker's emotions, his utterance were choked. It becomes more free and copious by the effort of speaking as he proceeds. Every word finds its way to the heart, and it may well be imagined that Benjamin, who stood there speechless like a victim about to be laid on the altar when he heard the magnanimous offer of Judah to submit to slavery for his ransom, would be bound by a lifelong gratitude to his generous brother, a tie that seems to have been become hereditary in his tribe. This is a truth that has and will continue to be revealed. Judah is speaking on behalf of Benjamin to Joseph, and in all three there is the relation to Christ. Jesus descends from Judah. Joseph pictures Christ as the supreme ruler, and Benjamin pictures Christ first as the suffering servant, and then as the son of the right hand. It is Judah picturing the Jews who is now offering himself to the one who once took their place. Joseph has claimed Benjamin as the one who will serve him in this Gentile land, and it is Benjamin from whom the apostle Paul came who wrote the words which speak of the authority of Christ who rules even over the Gentiles. Everything overlaps and everything points to the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And now there is the sudden transition where Judah speaks out to be made captive to the one he once agreed to sell off as a slave after having first thrown him into the pit. It is Judah and it is Joseph. It is the Jews and it is Jesus. Verse 18, then Judah came near to him and said, O oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's hearing and do not let your anger burn against your servant for you are even like Pharaoh. The burning anger of the Lord against Israel when they stray is noted from Exodus all the way through the Old Testament to the book of Malachi. Judah is making a petition to Pharaoh that his anger not burn against him as he spoke. Remembering that Joseph pictures Christ will help us keep this passage in perspective. Judah notes that Joseph is even like Pharaoh. The deity of Christ cannot be missed here. Pharaoh means great house, and it is a picture of the rule and authority of God from heaven. Thus, as the Geneva Bible says, Joseph is equal in authority to Pharaoh. The pulpit commentary notes that he is invested with the authority of Pharaoh. 
and therefore able, like Pharaoh, either to pardon or condemn. Thus, this passage given by God in his word is meant to show us this very clearly. It is an early picture of both the deity of Jesus Christ and to imply the doctrine of the Trinity. Albert Barnes, who doesn't speak of the connection between Joseph and Christ, still speaks about the uh, deity and the humanity of Christ as they're both pictured in Joseph. On this verse, he says that Judah will surmount the distinction of rank and stand with him, meaning Joseph, on the common ground of humanity. Surely the incarnate Christ, fully God and yet fully man, is the picture that we're to see here. Let your anger not burn against your servants, O Jesus. For though you are God, you are also a man. We appeal to you to have mercy upon us. Our weakness you shared, and so surely you understand. Verse 19, my Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? Much of what we'll see in the next verse and the verses to follow is a repetition of what has already been seen in the preceding passages of Genesis. It's recounted by Judah, speaking on behalf of all of Israel to Joseph. Now, as we go through these verses, keep remembering who each person pictures. It is the Bible's early hints to us that some great day Israel will stand up for and defend the servant who once suffered for them. There will be a change in their heart which seems impossible in our world today. And yet, as surely as lemons make your face pucker, it's going to happen. They will have to be brought to such a state that there is no other option left but to call out and to defend their once crucified Messiah. Judah now reminds Joseph that when they first met, he had asked if they had father or brother. If I were to give my best attempt at clarifying what this is pointing to, it would be a debate in Israel, and I'm speaking about probably the near future, after the rapture of the church concerning a group of Messianic Jews, Jews who had accepted Jesus Christ. And that means the 144,000 that are noted in the book of Revelation. Remember, Judah and the brothers do not know who Joseph is, but they are being asked to defend Benjamin, their youngest brother. He then pictures Jesus Christ and those who are in Christ. These Messianic Jews would be those who have received the gospel of Christ, but only those after the rapture. Verse 20, And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age who is young. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Yes, we have a father. He is old. In this picture, Jacob is Israel, not just the individual tribes. He is the collective Israel throughout all of the ages and all who have issued from him, including Joseph and Benjamin. He is the people who strive with God. Judah says, there is one child of his old age, but the term that he uses here is not the same one which was once used to describe Joseph. Okay, that picture Jesus, the wise son, the term that was used to describe Joseph was ben Zekunim hu, a son of old age to him. In other words, it was speaking of the apparent age of Joseph, not the actual age of Jacob. Okay, it was the wise son. It was picturing Jesus. However, in this verse, Benjamin is called Yeled Zekunim Katan, child of his old age, a little one. This then is surely speaking of the Messianic Jews of the tribulation period, a little group who have called on Jesus as the son of the right hand, again, pictured by Benjamin. 
Also in this verse, Judah tells Joseph that his brother is dead when speaking of Joseph. Well, we know that this is a complete misunderstanding of the situation. Both of Judah speaking to Joseph because Joseph is alive right there. And uh, they also miss the fact in Israel today that Jesus is actually alive. And he says that Benjamin is left of his mother's children and his father loves him. Both Benjamin and Joseph were born of Rachel. Throughout the stories of her life, and I mentioned this last week, and if you saw those sermons, you know, she pictured New Testament grace. There's no doubt that that's what she's picturing. Judah believes Joseph is dead, and so only Benjamin is left, and his father loves him. It is Benjamin, those Jews who have received Christ during the future tribulation that are beloved and favored in Israel. Judah, picturing the Jews, doesn't yet believe in Christ. But will they be willing to stand up for these believers who are a part of the nation of Israel at the, at the expense of their own lives? This is the test of the tribulation period. And this is what the sons of Israel face in their future. That's exactly what's being pictured here. Verse 21, then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. Judah, if you remember, he was told by Joseph at the time, you guys are spies. I remember that in that sermon, but he glosses over that. He never mentions it. And instead, he only speaks about Benjamin and his favor in Joseph's sight. He says, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. To set one's eyes on another in the Bible actually means to grant them favor and to care for them. And this is what the Bible shows about the 144,000 Jews in the book of Revelation. There in Revelation 7 verse 4, it says this, And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all of the tribes of Israel were sealed. And then two chapters later in Revelation 9 verse 4, speaking of a plague of locusts on the earth, it says this, They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Joseph has determined to care for Benjamin during the famine. Jesus will, during the tribulation, care for those whom he has sealed. Again, it's all pointing to Jesus and those in Israel who belong to him. Verse 22, And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. This verse becomes very clear when viewed from the lens of prophecy. Israel would, in fact, die if something were to happen to Benjamin. Without a faithful remnant, there would be no Israel. But God has promised that there always would be one, and he will save those faithful Messianic Jews of the tribulation period. Verse 23, But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. It was Joseph's plan here to test his brothers through Benjamin. And God will test Israel through the tribulation period, ensuring the safety of those sealed Jewish servants. Israel will never know the truth of who Jehovah really is, meaning Jesus, unless Benjamin is safe among the brothers. It is only through accepting Jesus Christ that we can know God. Without Benjamin, then he says, you shall see my face no more. If you consider this from their cherished high priestly blessing of Israel. It's from the book of Numbers. It makes all of the sense in the world. Here's what that blessing says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. If you understand that, this is their blessing that they hold to even now in Israel, that the Lord's face is a blessing. And Joseph is giving them a hint of this here about Jesus of the future. Unless you have Benjamin with you, you shall see my face no more. There is no divine grace without Benjamin, without the righteous remnant of Jewish people. The Lord bless you and you may he keep. This is my prayer for the Lord to do. May his face shine with the light on you, a light radiantly deep. And may his grace your soul renew. May the countenance of the Lord upon you be lifted up. And may his peace be found in your heart and soul. May you forever have an overflowing cup. And may you remember that surely the Lord is in control. Only in Christ is this possible because only Christ is Lord. Our second thought today, the father's love for Benjamin, verses 24 through 29. Verse 24 says, So it was when we went up to your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. Judah explains that the brothers passed on what they were told to say. They didn't hide it. They didn't try to circumvent the situation, but they made it plainly clear to Jacob. But Jacob dismissed the matter at first. Verse 25, And our father said, Go back and buy us a little food. Instead of telling the whole story of what happened, Judah tells where Jacob simply wanted them to return to Egypt for more food. When he said this, he used the term food, not grain. There was no point in calling it grain because there was only a need for food, not grain to plant. But food comes from grain, and the grain is the word of God, which speaks of the bread of life, Jesus. They're tied together in the Bible. Without the word, there is no Jesus, and without Jesus, there is no life. This is what we see pictured here, and they tell their father as much. Verse 26, but we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brothers with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Now, we can't be sure what will cause the nation of Israel to protect the Messianic Jews in the tribulation period. The Bible isn't explicit, but they will. It may be the two witnesses that are mentioned in chapter 11 of Revelation. They may convince them. I don't know. Whatever it is, they will know that this group must go with them as a nation. And without them, they will not meet the Lord again. This is dealing with something that is really going to happen. It's going to happen someday and probably someday rather close in our future. We're looking forward and it's awful difficult to pinpoint the, the specifics of the, uh, the matter here. But the overall message is very clear. It is key to understanding the reconciliation of Israel with their long estranged Messiah. And once again, the incarnation of Christ is also pointed to right in this verse here. Judah calls Joseph the man right in his presence. Instead of calling him the Lord of the land or maybe the governor or the ruler, he calls him the man. This then isn't used to, to diminish Joseph in any way, but rather he is trying to get his manhood exalted and mentioned so that they're on a common ground. Again and again, all of this is pointing to Christ. Verse 27, then your servant, my father said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. Judah relays to Joseph, not knowing that he's his brother, what Jacob told them. In essence, he says, sons, you know about Rachel and you know about the two sons. And again, Rachel pictures New Testament grace and both sons picture Christ and his work, immediate and ongoing. Joseph, if you remember from those sermons of the naming of the sons of Israel, was unique. He, his, he was based on two words rather than all of his older brothers who were named based on one word. 
the word asaf means to take away, and then the word yosef, which means to add. Both of those picture Jesus' work of taking away the reproach of the law and adding Gentiles to the people of God. And then Benjamin, like Joseph, was named based on two words. He pictures Christ in his suffering, where he was named Benoni, and then he pictures Christ in his exaltation when he was named Benjamin. All right? Together, these two contrast, and yet they confirm the work of God in Christ. Verse 38, And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. Anybody? Isn't that the work of Christ in a nutshell? The one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces. This is exactly the passion of Christ. He was torn for our healing. He was crucified for us. But for Israel collectively, they have not seen him since. There isn't a word which doesn't shout out Christ. It is all about him. In this verse, Judy uses the term tarof, toraf, means torn, torn. It is the exact same expression that was used in Genesis 37, verse 33, which was 17 sermons ago, when Joseph's bloodied garment was presented to Jacob. The heartache never diminished, the memory never faded, and the picture of Christ endures 2,000 years later. How Israel longs for his son. Verse 29, But if you take this one also from me and calamity befalls him, you shall bring my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Judah finishes his quoting of his father Jacob with the pitiful sound of his father's voice still ringing in his ears. If I lose Benjamin, I will die. This old man will go to the grave in death as a result of a broken heart. This is Judah's appeal to the humanity of the ruler of Egypt. Though you are great on the earth, you are also a human being. Please hear my concern for our father. You shall bring my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. Should I lose Benjamin, my beloved son? Only through his protection will you, my life, save. He is the life of Israel. Yes, he is the one. Without a faithful remnant of those who trust Jesus, Israel will perish and God's promises would fail. But there is hope in the son of the right hand for us. In him, we are secure. And against us, nothing can assail. Our third thought today, let me stand in the place of Benjamin. Verses 30 through 34. Verse 30 says, Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, Judah is preparing to make his final plea, and he sets it up with these words. If I come back and Benjamin isn't with us, and if my father's very life is tied to Benjamin, then, then the words of this passage here, they're so striking and they're so real to us. It is as if we're in the room with the actors as the dialogue is being spoken. One scholar of the Bible, Dr. Jackson, says this about the account. For it is plain that every circumstance is here related with such natural specifications as if Moses had heard them talk and therefore could not have been thus represented to us unless they had been written by his direction, meaning the Holy Spirit, who knows all things for past, present, or to come. In other words, either this story is completely false and it's made up, or it could only have been uttered by the Holy Spirit, who so carefully revealed the words to us that we seem to live them as they come to our senses. And if the Holy Spirit uttered them as he in fact did, 
then they were selected and they were passed on because God wants us to see Jesus in them. This is the only possible explanation for the detail and the specific wording, which would otherwise actually be unnecessary to give for the overall meaning of the account. The life of Jacob is tied up in the son of the right hand, Benjamin. Without him, there is no hope and only the expectation of death, as we now see. Verse 31, it will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. If Benjamin doesn't return to Israel, there will be no Israel. It is that clear. It is clear in this account when speaking of Jacob, and it is clear in the Bible when referring to Israel, the nation. In Christ, there is life. Without Christ, there is only the grave, which in Hebrew happens to be the Hebrew word Sheol, the place of the dead. Now, I get curious about things like this, and so I did a little check on the word Sheol. I love to find things out that maybe other people haven't thought about. This term Sheol is actually used only four times in the entire book of Genesis. And guess what? All four are referring to Jacob and his sorrow concerning his sons. First Joseph and then Benjamin. The use of the word Sheol these four times then cannot be coincidence. The number four in the Bible consistently speaks of God's creative works, such as the earth. He is known by the things that are seen but four times it has been revealed that without the sun, there is no revelation of God through sight. There is only the absence of it in death. Not until the book of Numbers will the word Sheol be used again. We have been given a specific look into the work of Christ in creation and also the resulting lack of that type of revelation in death. Right here in this passage about Jacob and his sons, Joseph and Benjamin, about Israel and Jesus. Verse 32, for your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father forever. Judah promised, and Judah will now work to make good on his promise. Someone must bear the blame for all evil actions. The sentence will be carried out either in the one who causes them or in a substitute. But the Bible shows that justice must be served. Judah said that if evil befalls Benjamin, he will bear the blame and he will do so, as the Hebrew says, chal hayamim, for all the days. It is a term which means that as long as days last, which means forever, he will bear the blame. That is a picture of salvation. We can either stand for the son of the right hand or we must bear the blame on our own. There is no middle ground in Jesus Christ and there is no partial admission into heaven. It is all Christ or it is no Christ. Judah must stand for himself or stand for Benjamin. What will he do? Verse 33, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brothers. The great Bible scholar of the 18th century, a guy I like to read, his name's John Gill, he had the imagery right in this verse, but guess what? He had the actors wrong. Here are his comments. In this, Judah was a type of Christ from whose tribe he sprung, who became the surety of God's Benjamins, meaning he's talking about us, um, his children who are beloved by him and as dear to him as his right hand. 
and he put himself in their legal place instead and became sin and a curse for them, that they might go free, as Judah desired his brother Benjamin might. John Gill rightly saw the substitution, but he missed the overall picture and therefore he misinterpreted who was the type of Christ and who Judah was picturing. It's probable that John Gill had no idea that Israel would ever be a nation again or that they would be back in the land that God promised them. Christ descends from Judah and he fulfilled the law as a Jew, but it is Joseph and Benjamin who are the sons of Rachel and thus they are the sons who picture Christ. Christ is the one that's being pictured here. Benjamin is being made the substitution for the wrong that he had done. Gil got it backwards. The brothers sold off Joseph, and it was Benjamin who received the cup, as we saw last week. It wasn't them. They, not he, are now under the test to take the responsibility for their own wrong actions. What Judah is proposing is in defense of Benjamin, not the other way around. Jesus has already stood in defense of them, just as he's already stood in defense of all of us. They now need to acknowledge that. Matthew Henry rightly saw Christ in Joseph in his thoughts about this passage. Here's what he said. Jesus is the great antitype of Joseph, humbles and proves his people, even after they have had some tastes of his loving kindness. He brings their sins to remembrance that they may exercise and show repentance and feel how much they owe to his mercy. Good job, Matthew Henry. Once the actors are rightly identified, then the pictures start to become clear. It is all about Jesus and his many, many roles in redemptive history. At this time, the church age has ended and it is all focused on his relationship with Israel. The exciting thing is that we're living right now and the time when these final pictures will be fulfilled. Maybe some of us will be here when they start. Well, actually, I hope we're not here. I hope we're raptured out at the, uh, you know, when Christ comes for us. But anyway, it's going to happen possibly in our lifetime. Verse 34, For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father? Judah finishes up this most beautiful monologue with these words. In essence, I would far rather stay here as a slave than face what catastrophe will come upon my father if Benjamin isn't here with me. His eyes could not bear, his heart could not endure, and his mind could not accept the misery that his father would display at the loss of Benjamin. He'd already seen it once with Joseph. This is his final plea, and this is where his words end. Now it will be up to the ruler of the land to decide his fate, the fate of Benjamin and that of Israel. For 2,000 years now, the Jewish people have looked to their own righteousness as codified in the Talmud. There's no room for Christ because they believe that righteousness comes from self before God, not from God upon undeserving self. But Judah's actions in this passage today show us that the Jews will someday get it. They will speak on behalf of the Son who is of much greater affection to God than they are. It is not about the law. The law can save no one, as Paul so clearly explains in his epistles, particularly Romans. It is about Jesus Christ who fulfilled the law for us. It is all about Christ who fulfilled the law for me. I know that I have no righteousness of my own, but because of him, I am saved forever, eternally. And so to the world, my desire is for his glory to be known. Judah was determined to sacrifice his own freedom 
for the sake of Benjamin and Jacob. And the Jews, as a nation, will someday be willing to do the same. When that day comes, Jesus will appear to them in all of his glory. And guess what? We're going to be right behind him. He's going to come riding a white horse, wearing many crowns. The word of God is his name. Lord of Lords and King of Kings is right there naming him who he is, and we're going to be the armies of heaven, the hosts of heaven, following with him to rescue Israel. Man, I, I can't wait for it. They're going to call on him, and they're going to acknowledge him, and he's going to return from them. When that day comes, it's going to be wonderful. This is what we will see when we look into the next chapter of Genesis. Time and time again, we see one common theme running throughout the Bible. Whether it is Israel or the Gentiles, God continues to pursue us when we turn from him. Among other reasons, the book of Genesis is given to show us how we got into this mess and then to give us pictures of how God will work in human history to get us back out of it. Without understanding these pictures, I will tell you that we can be built up in our faith. There's no doubt about it. But when we see why God chose each of these stories and the many details and the words he selected to tell them, we get a much fuller understanding of his immense wisdom and also his control over human history. And we also get a sense that all of that wisdom and all of that power is being directed towards securing a group of people for himself, from Jew and from Gentile, to be a praise and a glory for himself for all eternity. Now, if you haven't called on Jesus Christ and you aren't sure of your eternal destiny, let's settle that right now today. I want you to give me just another moment so that you can understand how you too can be saved by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's all found in Genesis, and it's all found throughout the rest of the Bible. We are at fault before God. We have sin in our lives, and we are separated from him. And as he said, you shall see my face no more without Benjamin. Without Jesus Christ defending us, we cannot see the face and the glory of God without being utterly consumed. All right? The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Then it tells us that the wages of that sin is, in fact, death. We die because we have sin in our lives. This sin problem will not go away on our own. There's nothing we can do to earn our own righteousness. We can't pray to statues. We can't fulfill the law. We can't climb to the highest mountain. We can't burn our body in the flames. It doesn't matter what we do. We are separated from God eternally. But Jesus Christ came born of a woman, born under the law, and he fulfilled that law on our behalf. And then he gave his life up as a sacrifice for us. But, the Bible says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've broken the law. He fulfilled the law. And so if we just simply call on Christ as Lord, that human Christ can put his hand on human you and me. And then that divine Christ can put his hand on his infinitely glorious Father. And he can make the bridge back to him. And his face will shine on us. And for those who have called on Christ, it already does. You're already reflecting the glorious radiance of Jesus Christ. And I'd ask that you'd continue every day to become more like him, more holy and more perfect. But someday we're going to see him face to face and we're going to be that silver that's refined seven times where God is going to look on us and he's only going to see his own glory reflecting back. But you have to get right with Christ first in order for that to happen. And without Christ, there is no life. There's only condemnation. And yes, what nobody likes to talk about anymore at the lake of fire eternity apart from God. So call on Christ, be reconciled to him, and it can never, it's like glue. I can't get my fingers apart now. Super glue here. You'll never, never lose your salvation. Christ is fully capable to save us through our own faults and our own 
you know, failures, okay? Be reconciled and be confident in your salvation. Our closing verse today comes from Psalm 90, which happens to be the oldest psalm in the Bible. It was written by a man named Moses, and uh, he wrote these words. And as I read this, I want you to think about Israel of the past 2,000 years and how they so long to be restored to God. Listen to what he says. It, It just fits so perfectly. Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. Man, they've missed it for 2,000 years. It's been right there, and they're asking for it to appear, and it's going to happen. As sure as lemons make you pucker, I said, it is going to happen. Then we're going to see it in next week's sermon. Next week is Genesis 45, 1 through 15. It's called, The Lord is revealed. That'll be our 112th Genesis sermon. I'm about to cry just saying those words. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. Be assured of that. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. Our poem today is called An Impassioned Plea. Then Judah came near to him and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak. A word in my Lord's hearing instead This is an unusual situation, one quite unique. And do not let your anger burn against your servant, for you are even like Pharaoh. In this I am observant. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother too? And we said to my Lord, The matter portraying, We have a father, an old man, as we then told you. And a child of his old age who is young, His brother is dead and left alone is he, Of his mother's children who from her sprung. And his father loves him with great affection, you see. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. Yes, bring this young absentee. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot his father leave. For if he should leave his father, he would die, and thus we too would grieve. But you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. These words I speak are true. So it was when up to your servant my father we went, that we told him the words of my Lord, the message you had sent. And our father said, making us frown, go back and buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. This course of action is just not good. If our youngest brother is with us in that place, then down we will go. For we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us, as you know. Then your servant, my father, to us said, you know that my wife two sons bore to, to me bore, and the one went out from me, he is dead. I know that I shall see him nevermore. And I said, surely he to pieces is torn, and I have not seen him since. I saw the bloodied coat that he had worn. But if you take this one also from me today or on the morrow, and calamity befalls him as his older brother, you shall bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave in my affliction, not that of another. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad with us is not, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, I know he will be completely overwrought. It will happen when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die in that spot. So your servants will bring down of your servant, our father, the gray hair, with sorrow to the grave, his body we will bury there. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying in this endeavor, if I do not bring him back to you, then surely I will bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please, I speak this word. 
Let your servant here remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord and let the lad go up to his brothers with his brothers once again. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not there with me too? Lest perhaps I see the evil that would come upon my father, this I plead to you. The heartfelt plea of Judah has now been spoken. The words of a caring brother and a loving son in them is the sure and blessed picture and token of the Jews when they call out to the righteous one. He is the son of the right hand of God, the one who first suffered on the hill of Golgotha. And we remember him every moment as on this earth we trod and anxiously we call out, Come, Lord, yes, Maranatha. Even so we call out, Come, Lord Jesus, as we live our lives in anticipation of that glorious day when he shall return and receive those of us who have trusted in him for our sins to pay. Praise be to thee, O God. All hail Jesus' name. We will for all eternity your glorious work proclaim. Hallelujah and amen. Lord, thank you that there is humility in this world when we face our own trials and troubles and that at that moment, whatever it is, that we are willing to humble our hearts and come back to you. And then thank you even more for the mercy you bestow upon us when we do that. I mean, it is just astonishing how we can so wickedly turn away from you and do things that are so against nature, so against what is moral, so against what is right. But when we humble ourselves as a people, as a church, as a nation, you do hear from heaven and you do forgive. Lord, I would pray for that in each heart here today. I would pray for it in this church today. And I would pray for it in this nation today that if there's anything that is causing us to be separate from you, and that you are looking with displeasure on, that you would take it away from us, and that you would heal us and restore us to you. This would be my prayer. And I would thank you, Lord, that uh, you would be taking care of each person here, blessing them in the week ahead, keeping them safe, keeping them prosperous and happy and healthy. And uh, should they face a trial, that they will understand that it was given by you to refine them, and that they are being refined and being brought to a state where you will see only yourself in them. What a great God you are. How glorious you are for allowing us to make these choices and to walk away from you or to come closer to you. Thank you for that. Thank you that when you do draw us near, it is with the bonds and cords of love that can never be broken. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for all of this in the glorious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>